Uh, Turn now to 1 Kings chapter 10, uh, which is our passage for this evening, 1 Kings chapter 10. And uh, before we read, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this word, and once again, we pray that you would open up our hearts to it, that you would teach us from it uh, the marvelous things about your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, a well-known story. Um, Let's hear what uh, the editors of 1 Kings tell us. Now, when the Queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. And she said to the king, The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes have seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king. And that you may execute justice and righteousness. And then she gave the king 120 talents of gold and a very great quantity of spices and precious stones. Never again uh, came such an abundance of spices as these that the Queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. Moreover, the fleet of Hiram, which brought gold from Ophir, uh, brought from Ophir a very great amount of almag wood and precious stones. And the king made of the almag wood supports for the house of the Lord and for the, the king's house. Also lyres and harps for the singers. No such almag wood has come or been seen to this day. The king's, uh, and King Solomon gave the queen of Sheba all that she desired. Whatever she asked besides what was given her by, her bounty of the, by the bounty of the king Solomon. So she turned and went back to her own land with her servants. Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. Besides that which came from the explorers and from the business of the merchants and from the kings of the west and from the governors of the land. King Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold. 600 shekels of gold went into each shield. And he made 300 shekels of beaten gold, uh, shields of beaten gold. Three miners of gold went into each shield. And the king put them uh, in the house of the forest of Lebanon. 
king also made a great ivory throne and overlaid it with the finest gold. The throne had six steps, and at the back of the throne was a calf's head, and on each side of the seat were armrests and two lions standing beside the armrests. While twelve lions stood there, one on each end of, uh, of a step of the six steps. The like of it was never made in any kingdom. All King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. None were of silver. Silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. For the king had left a fleet of ships of Tarshish at sea with a fleet with the fleet of Hiram. Once every three years, the, the fleet of ships of Tarshish used to come bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Every one of them brought his present articles of silver and gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses and mules, so much year by year. And Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horsemen, whom he stationed in the chariot cities uh, with the, and, the king, and with the king in Jerusalem. And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone. And he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of the Shephelah. And Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Kue. And the king's traders received them from Kue at a price. A chariot could be imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. And so through the the king's traders, they were exported to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. Well, that's a story that was made famous by Hollywood in the 1950s. But you need to put all of that aside and... uh, Just read what's there. (laughs) Uh, Hollywood is not very accurate. But last week we came to the end of the section where uh, Solomon has built the temple. And um, and it ended, and we looked at this last week, it ended with a, a call from God to Solomon to be faithful to the word of God that had been given. A call to be faithful to his words, to the covenant promises that he has made, that God has made, and uh, to live uh, for him. And this is, of course, the nature of the relationship that God institutes with his people. That it's a covenant relationship with requirements placed upon his people with uh, accompanying blessings for obedience and faithfulness uh, and curses for, and for disobedience and so on. And uh, so, the, so this faithful God comes with promises of blessing, um, but to the unfaithful and to the disobedient, there are judgments. And this is all spelled out in Je- Deuteronomy 28. So we're still in the, uh, under the, uh, the, the old covenant, if you like. And so Deuteronomy 28 spells all of that out. So here we have Solomon, head of the people of God, people of Israel, uh, in covenant with God, on behalf of the people, and uh, all the people will follow as the king uh, is faithful. As we come to chapter 10, I think the primary interest of the the writer 
is to show us the blessings of the covenant that come uh, as a result of God's goodness uh, under such a king. And the chapter tells us of how the glory of the kingdom uh, under Solomon is displayed to a pagan queen uh, from the south. Uh, Sheba is thought to be that region which uh, is probably where Yemen is today on the southern tip of the Arabian Peninsula uh, or possibly in the Horn of Africa it's it's a bit unclear uh, where exactly it is but uh, we get this visit from uh, the Queen of Sheba and the the passage, the chapter falls into two parts one is the visit from 1 to 13 uh, of the Queen of Sheba and she comes with many questions she comes with many gifts and uh, she receives many gifts when she's there and while she's And she's there. She has this kind of breathtaking experience of seeing the glory of Solomon's kingdom and the prosperity of it all. And, uh, you know, it takes away her breath. And then in 14 to 29, we have the account, uh, a a kind of an account of just the sheer extent of Solomon's wealth as king. and the, the common theme through this is, yeah, it's just gold. <laughs> There's gold everywhere. Your gold is being transported in from the trading arrangements that he's, he's managed to set up and the shipping arrangements he's managed to set up. And, uh, you know, it's just vast amounts of gold coming into the, into the country. Um, hundreds of talents, and a talent's about 75 pounds. You need to do the maths to work out. 120 talents, I think, is about four tons. Four tons of gold. I mean, just think about that. Uh, you, know, you may have a ring on your finger that's a few grams. But four tons of gold is coming in. And then, actually, uh, at a time, in some, you know, it says there's, you know, in one year, 666 talents of gold. Well, that's nearly 10 tons. More than that, maybe. Much more than that. And uh, so huge amounts of gold. Gold is just everywhere. Such that silver is just of no interest to anybody. <laughs> you know, um, just builds things with it. You know, it's like stone, it says. Well, let me just focus on, I want to draw attention to four things this evening. And, uh, and the first is to, it's really an interpretational point. Is that a word? Interpretational? <laughs> um, about how we look at a story like this. Um, Because what we have uh, through the story of Solomon are, in a sense, two lines of thought running concurrently with each other. Uh, So the first line of thought is, the first thing is these two lines of thought. Um, That's the first point. The first line is is the promise of God to Solomon. And, And you find this all through scripture, that the thread that connects everything together is the continuing promise of God. And the unfolding circumstances that bring about the promises of God. And, what, and you, you may remember that specifically to, to Solomon in chapter 3, there was, a, there was a promise given. So you may remember the story in, in chapter 3. Solomon comes to the throne and the Lord appears to him in a dream and says, what would you like me to give you? And Solomon could ask for long life and riches and you know, power and all, all these things that kings have. And what does he ask for? He asks for wisdom. And the Lord is pleased with that. And he says, I'll give you all the wisdom you need. And besides that, I'm going to give you long life and, lots, and you know, prosperity. 
I'm going to give you all the things you didn't ask for. And, uh, and so that promise is there uh, in 1 Kings 3.13. Um, and chapter 10 is the evidence that that's being fulfilled. That he is getting all the prosperity and all the amazing pr- the fulfillment of all the promises of God as he promised. So that's one line of thought. The promise of God and its fulfillment. But the second line of thought, and we've, we've touched on this, and we've seen hints of it so far, is that not all is well with Solomon's soul. Little hints here and there, like little fish bones in a deliciously tasty meal, but you know, you're disappointed when you, you hit a fish bone, you have to pull it out. And um, you know, Solomon's life's a bit like that. It's got these kind of little fish bones in it that you have to kind of pick out and uh, just pay attention to. Well, you, you'll suffer <laughs> if you don't. And um, so, for example, in Deuteronomy 17, when God gives Moses the law, he says, you know, in future, there will be a king of Israel. But the king of Israel, there are certain restrictions on the king of Israel. He must not have too many horses. He must not accumulate to himself too many horses. Why? Because... He must not rest on the power of his, his armies, but he must rest on the power of God. He must look to God for security. But what do you find with Solomon? He begins to accumulate all the horses. Uh, from Egypt, amazingly enough, as we'll see, he gets, there's quite a neat little import-export business going on with horses from Egypt and being you know, spread to all the other kings around the, the region. And um, you know, Israel is told not to rely on any other power, any other nation. And yet it seems to be increasingly Solomon is, is relying on Egypt. And, uh, but he's ignored all that. Uh, one of the other issues is his many wives. Now, his many wives have not come up yet, but next chapter you will discover just how, how many wives he's got. It's a lot. <laughs> Hundreds of wives he has accumulated for himself. And not only that, he has, uh, we've already seen in chapter 3 that he has uh, married a, a pagan Egyptian princess as part of a political deal. And... Um, the process, you see, is underway in his own heart to undermine his trust in God. So not everything is well with Solomon's soul, in spite of the external blessing that he seems to be receiving. So we've always got to keep those parallel views in mind. And I, th- I think there's something very important that we need to, to learn from this as Christians, how do we respond to material prosperity that we receive, if we do receive it? And some of us do receive it. God may bless you with material prosperity. He may give you, give you lots of money. He may, uh, uh, your investments may pay off. Uh, you may be an entrepreneurial type that suddenly comes into a, a way of making money. And you suddenly find yourself rolling in it. Or you inherit it or something. You, know, you find yourself richly blessed and God blesses you. What is the... What are you supposed to do with that? Well, the first thing you're supposed to do 
is to praise God for it. There's nothing inherently evil about money or wealth. The Bible has actually got plenty of examples of wealthy men who are faithful uh, men, men and women. And the problems to do with wealth, wealth are not to do with the wealth itself, but rather the love of money, how it grips your heart. And so Paul says to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6.10, says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So, so there are great blessings in wealth, but there are dangers also in wealth. So what's the right response then? Well, the first thing to do is to, when you come into money, and you, or you're blessed, or you have a good job or whatever, thank God for it. Praise God for it. Second thing is, just remain humble about it. You, uh, you, not be, you may not be particularly special, but you're coming, you've come into this blessing. And you need to maintain humility before God about your, your, uh, all that you've received. So cultivate a humble spirit in your own heart. Third thing is material blessings come with great responsibility. And so how you use it becomes really important how you're going to use what God has given you. Are you going to keep it for yourself? Or are you going to use it for good? Or for the kingdom? Um, And it's just interesting that at the beginning of uh, Solomon's reign, he was concerned to use his position to bless all of his people. So that all of his people were fed and, and happy and everybody shared in the blessing. Now, all of this, in all of this, the, there are dangers of the corruption of the heart. And one of the things that emerges from this chapter is, and, and you may question this, is, is the kind of pointlessness of the golden shields. You know, all of these golden shields for his soldiers, you know, the hundreds of golden shields that he makes. Huge amounts of gold involved. And you could just imagine just how amazing that would look. You know, you have these rows and rows of soldiers with their golden shields and how impressive all that would be. The problem is it would be utterly useless in a battle because, of course, gold is malleable. It's soft. It's useless. You know, it's, it's as useful as a golden tank uh, on the battlefield. You know, first of all, you can see it and you can fire missiles at it. And then secondly, it's so soft, it's useless. It wouldn't give any protection whatsoever. So, in a sense, there's a kind of wastefulness about this whole thing that kind of raises the alarm bells slightly. And this is a danger with being materially blessed, the wastefulness that can come as a result. Um, so here's Solomon, this high point of the kingdom, and, um, and we're seeing it at the peak of his glory. And... We need to be careful about the prosperity that God gives us. Uh, One thing we can learn from this. However, I don't think that's the main issue uh, that's here. Uh, So those two lines that I talked about, the glory of the kingdom and the corruption of the heart. The corruption of the heart will come next chapter. But this chapter we're to think about the glory of God's promises and the wonderful fulfillment of his promises. 
And that's what I want to talk about next. The, the, the wonderful testimony of this chapter is to the blessing of God upon his people. How he answers his promises. That seems to be the focus of this chapter. And the reason that we know that is for two passages within this chapter. The first is, uh, is the, the exclamation of the Queen of Sheba in verses 6 through to 9. And let me just read that to you again. And she said to the king, The report was true that I heard in my own land in your words, uh, uh, of your words and of your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came and, and my own eyes have seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and your prosperity surpassed the reports that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord your God loved Israel forever. He has made you king and you, uh, that you may execute justice and righteousness. It's as though... It's written there so that we as the readers can read that and we can agree with the Queen of Sheba. What an amazing thing it is that we have just seen. And it seems clear that you know, she, she traveled with a degree of skepticism, not believing everything that she'd been told about this court. But now her mind has been changed and it was literally breathtaking. Verse 5, there was no more breath in her. It was like, oh, I can't breathe because of all of this. <laughs> this splendor that's around her. And she's seen how the court operates. She's seen how the servants operate. She notes how happy everybody seems to be. It's just an amazing thing. And so what she does is she offers praise to God. She cannot help it but offer praise to God. This God of yours has done all praise to him. Now it's truly remarkable, isn't it? Because you think where she has come from. She is a pagan princess. From a pagan country. And she comes and gives praise to God for all that she has seen. It's an amazing testimony to the goodness of God. And we are to believe that as well. Well, that's how the Queen of Sheba thinks. But then, just in case there's any doubt about how we should think about it, uh, the narrator of the scene also pitches in with a similar kind of statement. Look at verses 23 to 25. Thus says the narrator, the king Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. The whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Every one of them brought his present articles of silver and gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses, and mules, so much year by year. And the implication here is that the that the Queen of Sheba was not the only one to come to the court and see all this grandeur and splendor. That actually this seems to be almost a continual procession of local kings coming to the court of Solomon and having their breath taken away by what they have seen. And so they all, and they all bring their gifts. So they want to offer to Solomon gifts for his wisdom. Well, there's something wonderfully evangelistic about this, isn't there? About this king of the people of God 
being a magnet, as it were, for the world, coming in. And people bringing themselves and their gifts and laying them at the feet of the king. I wonder how many of those kings became believers in the God of Israel, in the God, the one true and living God of the whole earth, because of what they saw. And it reminds me, I think, of Paul's brief comment in 1 Corinthians 14 about the effect of a church worshipping the living God. And you just imagine unbelievers coming into that body of believers who are worshipping God with all their hearts under the power of the Holy Spirit. And Paul says, you know, for that visitor, the secrets of his heart are disclosed and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God really is among you. This is the effect that the church of Jesus Christ is to have on people who come and visit the local church. In a sense, they catch a a sense of the glory of the kingdom of God by being present here amongst us as we worship and we give our hearts to worship. Do not underestimate, brothers and sisters, do not underestimate how men and women blessed by God through the gospel when they gather together, have an impact on visitors. Where their thoughts are directed to heaven, perhaps for the first time in their lives. That's why we should be bringing our friends and our neighbors and our family members. Because we hope that they will have their hearts directed to heaven and give praise to God and say, God is truly among you. So this chapter is a testimony to the goodness of God. Here's here's the next thing, though. And this is a a thought that um, Ralph Davis in his commentary brought out, and I think it's so good, and so I'm just going to repeat it. Uh, Isn't this actually, this historical event and account, isn't this actually a prophetic word, a word of prophecy about the kingdom to come? You see, this is a picture of the nations coming in. The nations coming to God's kingdom. And as you think about that, does it not foreshadow the great gathering to the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ? From every tribe, tongue, and nation coming in to pay homage to the the risen king. I think Solomon himself seems to anticipate this as he has written in Psalm 72, which is a psalm of Solomon. He says this, May he, the king, have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tributes. May the kings of Sheba and Sheba bring gifts. Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. This is the king of kings. Prophetic word about the king of kings and yet it's expressed in terms of Sheba coming with all our gold to the king of kings. Or think of Isaiah writing three or four hundred years later. The prophets. And saying this, Isaiah 
I haven't noted down the chapter and I'm a bit embarrassed by that. But let me read it to you anyway and I'll find it later. The abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nation shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. Young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense. And shall bring good news and praises of the Lord. Isaiah 60. This picture of the kingdom of God. And all the nations coming. And coming from Sheba and all, all the rest of it. To bring gifts to the king. As one, the Old, the Old Testament you see it anticipates, as one commentator put it, a worldwide surge to Zion. And that Old Testament picture that we find here in 1 Kings 10 is expressed in the New Testament. As we look at those camels that are traveling with all this gold that they're carrying, this is a picture of the nations coming in to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, giving their, t- giving their gifts, giving their resources, giving themselves pretty much to the King to put at the disposal of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Solomon prayed for, isn't it? If you go back to chapter 8, remember what he prayed for? Uh, 1 Kings 8, verse 41, this great prayer that he prays. He says, Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people of Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake, uh, for they shall hear of your great name and the mighty hand and your outstretched arm. And when he comes and prays towards this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls you calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. And then go ahead to verse 60. Uh, that uh, The Lord does this, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God, there is no other. See, there's evangelism here. The glory, the prophetic words of the evangelistic ministry of the kingdom of God in the world, gathering people in. And if it's happening here in 1 Kings chapter 10, how much more is it going to be happening with the Lord Jesus Christ? And the glory shall be seen. Well, there's one more thing to say about the Queen of Sheba. And it's this. And it's a warning to us. And, uh, and it comes from the New Testament. Uh, this other, one other place that uh, Sheba is mentioned. Although not explicitly, it's the Queen of the South. But so Matthew chapter twelve, uh, Jesus is uh, speaking to Pharisees and scribes, and the scribes and Pharisees they want Jesus to give them a sign to to verify his identity and who he claims to be. And Jesus answers them and says, "The only sign that you're going to see is the sign of Jonah." And Jonah was held in the belly of a fish, a great fish, for three days. And the implication is that likewise, he is going to be under the ground for three days, dead, but then he's going to rise again from the dead. So that's the sign. But he finishes his statement, Jesus, with a warning, a warning of judgment. And he says this, and he says this to the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious men. He says this, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with his generation and condemn it. 
For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now, why is that a warning to us? Well, it's the same warning. There's one greater than Solomon here. Jesus is getting at the stubbornness of these men who have the Savior, the one greater than Solomon, standing in front of them, and yet they stubbornly refuse to come to him. These are religious men. And they think they've got everything sussed out. But the stubbornness of their hearts stops them receiving entry into the kingdom of God. But you compare that with the Queen of Sheba and Solomon, who had many of the disadvantages of paganism. And she didn't know anything when she came to Solomon. And she only had Solomon to listen to. But at the end of it, her heart rang out with praise to God. Because she had discovered the kingdom of God. Now Jesus says, her testimony stands in judgment of all those who get to hear Jesus Christ. But then refuse to accept him. The Queen of Sheba stands in judgment, as it were. And you might be here this evening, and you are, I don't know if that's true or not, but you, know, you may be viscerally opposed to Jesus Christ, you know, in your guts. You're opposed to him, you hate him. Or you may be casually indifferent to him. It really doesn't matter which it is, or anything in between. But if you ignore and reject the king of kings and all the blessings of the kingdom then there is one who will stand in testimony against you at the judgment seat the day that you come the day that you die or when if Jesus comes first and takes you and you come before him in the courtroom of heaven there's one in that courtroom who's going to point her finger at you the queen of sheba Say, you should have listened. You should have listened. And paid attention. Friends, pay attention to this King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We may not have all the gold in this room and all the golden shields and all the splendor, the material splendor, but there is the splendor of the gospel of the kingdom, splendor of the King of Kings that we cannot see but we know is there. Come to him and give yourself to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful story. And uh, it's staggering to think about it and the sheer scale of the opulence that we read here. And for some of us, we may be appalled by it. Um, but we do pray that uh, whatever feelings of it of revulsion at the excess we might feel that all of that's put aside that we may see the blessing of God instead and the glory of the kingdom of God Lord we pray that every single one of us would give ourselves afresh to the, the one greater than Solomon Jesus Christ in his name we pray Amen